It's read for us. You'll find this passage on page 819 in the Bibles that are found for you in the backs of the chairs. If one of those would be helpful for you, uh, I trust that you'll benefit from it today. And if you would benefit from taking it home and using it or giving it to someone else, please feel free to do that. If you grew up in Christianity, I suspect that when you were a kid, someone in your Christian life probably said something like this, at least once, to you. Is that what Jesus would have done when he was a kid? You think Jesus was ever mean to his siblings? You think Jesus ever talked back to his parents? You are right, Zeb, he never did. Imagining what Jesus was like in his early years can be quite the convicting thought. And that's all we can really do is imagine what Jesus' childhood was like. There's obviously a few remarks in the scriptures about Jesus' childhood, but you can read the entire New Testament and come away largely unaware of the first 30 years of Jesus' life. However, some of the characters in our text were fully aware of the first 30-ish years of Jesus' life. What must it have been like for some of these people to have been childhood friends with Jesus? What must it have been like for some of these people to have been his neighbors? You know, you'd think that they would have seen in his early life some indications of his divinity, perhaps. He would have behaved perfectly as a child. He would have literally always spoken with kindness and grace and truth. He knew God's law to the extent that in Luke chapter 2, we get this story of his interaction with some religious leaders at the temple when he was 12 years old, leading to these people's perception of him being described in Luke 2 this way. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding. And that story, incidentally, is one of the only pictures we get of Jesus as a young boy. But even with these indicators of his divinity that must have been present, if you think about it, he also would have seemed, in some other ways, to be an ordinary boy. He was fully human and fully divine. So that means he would have gotten cuts and bruises. He would have dealt with sickness in some way. He would have had to deal with physical strength limitations as a young person helping with the family business of carpentry. And so while there was indeed evidence that something was very different about Jesus, at least some of the people who watched him grow up would have never been under the impression that he was particularly special apart from what they would have noticed about his behavior and pleasant demeanor. And these are the very people that Matthew describes for us in verses 53 through 58 of chapter 13. Matthew's account of this interaction between Jesus and the people of his hometown is actually not a very pleasant one. 
said just a few moments ago that it must have been quite easy to notice some things about Jesus being unique and divine. But if the people in our text did notice those things, it wasn't enough for them to embrace him as Savior and King. In fact, quite the opposite. As it turns out, his own hometown largely rejected him. You know, our cultural sensibilities today are really quite individualistic. And in fact, we're also quite insulated in our individualism. And we live in a cultural, political, even socioeconomic bubble much of the time. I would suggest that it's actually quite unhealthy how our sense of community has deteriorated in our current culture. But in ancient society, such as the one Jesus was in, the culture was much more communal, much more familial in that community. And of course, as I said a second ago, we're accustomed to this globalization in our day. Our culture is very different. The internet has changed everything. We can now communicate with someone on the other side of the planet in mere seconds if we set it up accordingly. But in Jesus' day, globalization wasn't even a concept to anybody. You were stuck with the people in your region, and you weren't just stuck with them. You depended on them, and they depended on you. And the whole thing is just rather foreign to us these days. But my point is that the society that Jesus grew up in was one with a high value on community and one in which the people knew each other quite well. That's my point. And were to some extent, therefore, rather close-knit. And with that being the case, isn't it quite puzzling that the people from Jesus' hometown weren't the ones who actually embraced him the most. Of course, they hadn't seen him perform miracles as a child. He did those later, but they knew his character. They knew his personality. They saw so much of his life, and yet, when it came down to it, they rejected him. Why? That's the question I asked myself when reading this passage. Why did they reject Jesus? Why does anyone reject Jesus? And it's a question that I believe we find four answers to in this passage. And we'll go in order of the verses before us. The first is that I believe it's because his teaching is astonishing. You see that in verse 54, where you see this word astonished. But look at these, these first two verses together. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? You see in verse 53 that this event comes right on the heels of the seven parables that precede this passage. And Jesus then makes his next ministry stop after that third major discourse of parables and goes to his hometown. That's his next stop in order to teach. And it says that he taught them in their synagogue. 
You may have a version that says he began to teach them in their synagogue, which could suggest that it was an ongoing thing that happened more than once. It could just simply be one time. But what was teaching in a synagogue like? Well, in some ways, it's a lot like what I'm doing right now and what we are all doing together at this very moment. The word synagogue essentially simply means a place of assembly, which is also similar to the word meaning behind church. And so synagogues were central places for assembling in the Jewish community. Some of the synagogues, historians will tell you, acted more like community centers than mere gathering places for one day a week. Probably something a little bit akin at least to what we might think of as bygone American little church buildings in small towns that functioned both as church and school. And I suppose you can add council meeting places as well as perhaps a refuge for, for the poor. But most importantly, synagogues were the place of worshiping the one true God, Yahweh, and to hear his word explained and taught. It's where his law was read. It's where scripture was taught and applied. It's where psalms were sung. It's where the people of God gathered to learn and worship and fellowship. And that is where Jesus shows up and begins to teach in verse 54. Now, Matthew doesn't give us a full picture of what exactly he was teaching. There are some scholars who would suggest that the event recorded here in Matthew 13, 53 through 58 is the same event that Luke records in his chapter 4 where Jesus reads from Isaiah and then rolls up the scroll and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your healing, hearing. Perhaps that's the case. I tend to suspect that it's not. I could totally, obviously be wrong. But it's definitely the same event that Mark records in his chapter 6. His account is almost identical, as is often the case, with Mark and Matthew. And so if you were to turn there and look, you would see virtually the exact same wording. So we don't know exactly what Jesus said or how long he had been back in his hometown before he started teaching in the synagogue. It could have been that he just came back home for a visit and he was asked courteously as a new traveling rabbi to speak at their synagogue. It could be possible that he showed up and asked to be able to speak. We don't know. But we do know that he taught in such a way that they were utterly astonished. Verse 54. Reminds me of the way Matthew put it regarding the crowd's reaction to his sermon on the mount in Matthew 7, 28-29, where Matthew says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. Jesus spoke with authority as he gave his Sermon on the Mount, and obviously he was doing it again in chapter 13, verses 53 and 54. So Matthew doesn't tell us what he taught, but we can be certain that what he taught would have been consistent with everything else that he taught. About the kingdom of God. About the law. About the response required of everyone to the call of the kingdom. But the astonishing nature of his teaching was not necessarily astonishing in the sense that perhaps a Christian today like you or me might read God's word and be astonished in terms of being blessed. For some, 
the astonishing nature of his teaching apparently wasn't a positive. Because for some, at least, it led to questions regarding where his teaching was coming from. And if you look at verse 54, the force of their question was not, in the original language, was was not merely a kind of simple questioning. I wonder where he got this from. It suggests that they weren't simply asking what school did this guy get his degree from. Rather, the language suggests that they were questioning whether or not his authority was from God. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works, I wonder, in a sort of suspicious way? In other words, they may have been calling into question whether or not his power had the backing of God or the backing of hell. Now, we can't be certain of their motives there. Can't be certain of their thoughts there. But with the way the original language is constructed and with the context of the rest of Matthew, it certainly smacks at least a little bit of the kinds of things that Jesus encountered like that before. You could perhaps not even need to turn your page and look at Matthew 12, verse 24. Do you remember this from not too long ago? Jesus is teaching, excuse me, ministering in verses 22 and 23, and he heals this man, and the man speaks of what he saw, and all the people are amazed in verse 23, but when the Pharisees heard it, verse 24, they said, it can only be by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The Jewish leaders saw Jesus perform miracles that were astonishing, and instead of responding in faith, they responded by questioning, even suggesting that those miracles may have actually been empowered by Satan. These people in Matthew 13 in the synagogue, including some leaders, religious leaders, heard Jesus' astonishing teaching and Matthew does not say and they believed it says and they asked instead of humbly receiving it where it came from and so it is with so many who when confronted with the teaching of Jesus cannot help but acknowledge how astonishing it is and still choose to reject it Friends, there has never been anyone in the history of the world who taught things like Jesus of Nazareth did. That is undeniable by anybody. The question is, how will we respond to the astonishing things that he taught? For some, the teaching of Jesus is just a bit too much. The prospect of denying self and following him and letting go of our worldly identity, so to speak, and submitting to his work of transforming us from the inside out is just too painful. I suppose for some, rejecting Jesus' teaching seems to be the path of least resistance because of what it would cost. The sad truth, however, is that the path of least resistance then is a path that leads to destruction in the end. As we see in a moment in verse 57, at least some of them definitely took offense at him in response to his teaching. But the words that they say before Matthew's comment about their offense is illuminating, and I think it gives us a second answer to our question about why people reject Jesus, and it is because of his humble humanity. Look at what they begin to say to each other starting in verse 55. 
Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? What is it that they're talking about? They're talking about his humanity. They're talking about his family. They're talking about his background. Of course, I brought this up just a few minutes ago, but again, remember, they watched Jesus growing up. They knew his parents. They knew his siblings. They knew his favorite games. They knew his favorite songs. They could tell stories about what he had said and done as a child, and now here he stands teaching in their synagogue. And again, I go back to the way in which we are accustomed to a much more mobile existence and a mobile society to the extent that some of us in this room have lived in several different communities. Many of us who've been Christians for some time have actually been members of a handful of different churches in our lifetimes. Redeemer Bible Church is not Kyle and Teresa's first church of which they've been a member. And that's common for all, nearly all of us. I've actually been a part of six by my count, and it would be the case that in at least three, I think, of those churches, besides this one, that if I went back, several of the members would recognize my name at least, if not my face by now, and remember me as a much younger person. And in the same way, the synagogue in which Jesus was teaching here was his home church, you could say. He would have worshipped with them growing up. He would have sung with them, listened to Scripture, memorized Scripture, and many of them, people that he was now teaching. You know, thinking about it in my own context, I imagine that if I arrived at one of those churches that I spent time in as a younger person and began to preach to them in the same way I'm preaching to you now, it may be hard for some of them to take me seriously because they knew me as a hyper-grade schooler and a nerdy middle schooler and an immature teenager and a young buck of a seminary student and pastoral intern. But knowing Jesus when he was younger would not have meant seeing anything like that He was perfect. And so don't you think it's possible that at least part of the reason that his hometown people rejected him was because it had been a bit convicting or annoying at times when his behavior was so perfect or when his spiritual devotion was so pure or when his countenance and demeanor were always God-honoring and content and joyful? You know, we don't really use, at least I don't think, the phrase goody two-shoes much anymore. I actually looked it up this week, that, and it comes from an old children's story about a poor girl called the goody two-shoes who was very virtuous and eventually wound up successful and wealthy despite her origins of poverty because she was always so vir- virtuous. And so the phrase is pejoratively meant to be aimed at people who are overly virtuous for the sake of getting ahead and becoming successful and advancing. It's possible, I think it's got to be possible, that some of the people who watched Jesus grow up slandered him in a way something like the phrase goody two-shoes. But isn't it also possible then that if that's the case, that the real reason behind their slander was because his life was a constant reminder to them that their lives never came close to matching his? 
And so in one sense, it would be understandable if they resented his good behavior and wrongly assumed that it was because of his desire to, quote-unquote, get ahead in life. But of course, that wasn't it really, was it? His perfect life was not at all aimed at getting ahead in this life. His perfect life was actually aimed at something far more eternally minded than simply gaining favor with the people around him. In fact, Jesus' life was on a path leading to death. His perfect life fulfilled all the righteous requirements of God, and then his death on the cross was an atoning sacrifice for all who would believe. Of course, then, praise God, he was raised in proof that his fulfillment and sacrifice was acceptable to the Father and that now all who trusted in him could have their sins forgiven and have their relationship with God restored. And so I think it's a little ironic that to whatever extent that they may have resented his humble humanity, it was actually a crucial aspect of his ministry aimed at their eternal restoration to God. Because if Jesus hadn't been a perfect young man, there would have been no hope for any of those people to be reconciled to God. But going back to this humble humanity... Whether or not they resented his good behavior, we're not told here necessarily. It's a, it's a pretty, I think, reasonable, plausible suggestion. But what they say here, what they refer to here, is Jesus' family members. Speaking of how they thought of him as being related to these people, and perhaps not that special as a result a person, as special a person to stand before them in that moment. They, they list his family members. It says in verse 55, is not this the carpenter's son? Interestingly, in Mark's account, it simply says, is not this the carpenter? And that may be an indicator that Jesus' earthly father, named Joseph, had passed away by then, leaving Jesus the title of the carpenter that his father had once occupied. Don't know that for sure, but some extra-biblical ancient resources do speak of Jesus as being the town carpenter in Nazareth. So, certainly possible that that's how they thought of him. Not a Torah scholar, not a rabbi, the carpenter. Useful, to be sure, in the town, they needed him. Respected, to a degree, absolutely, Come on, how could this guy be saying these things? They mention his mother Mary as well. That's a reminder of his humble human origins too, isn't it? Mary delivered him as a virgin. Some may have questioned the legitimacy of her pregnancy with him. And of course, Joseph the carpenter that they refer to here was also only a carpenter. Mentions his brothers as well by name, some of whom go on to be faithful members of the kingdom, advancing the gospel. They also mention his sisters here. It says in verse 56, are not all his sisters with us? It may suggest that his sisters had never left town. Perhaps got married and stayed there. And this was 
Nazareth. This was not Jerusalem. What good could come from Nazareth, they would have said. I think in moments like this of of Christopher Hitchens, I believe it was, the late atheistic scholar who said at one point that it was absolutely ludicrous to him to suggest that God's son would be born and raised in this backwater town like Nazareth to a poor family in one of the most primitive times and places in human history. He just could not get past that. And so Jesus' humble human family origins aren't that impressive, and it's at least part of why these people rejected him. And it is perhaps, as it was for the late Christopher Hitchens, the case for many today, too. Here's the third reason. Because his message is offensive. Verse 57 simply says, They took offense at him, and then Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. As I've already hinted, I suspect this part here in verse 57 is the most central reason in this text explicitly stated regarding the people's rejection of him more than his small town roots perhaps more than his humble carpentry as a profession but I want to touch on it a bit more and maybe a little bit further verse 57 does say that they took offense at him it doesn't say they took offense at his teaching And Matthew says that they were offended at him right after he records, Matthew that is, records their familiarity with him and their incredulity at his teaching as a result. And so perhaps they're not upset at what he's saying. They're just annoyed that this guy has come who they know so well and have a hard time believing would be this great teacher of the law. But I don't see how their offense could be detached from his message. Because his message was at the heart of his life and ministry. The message that the kingdom of God was being inaugurated through him and that all were called to repent and believe the gospel. The message that they had found just a few verses earlier so astonishing. And think about this proverbial saying of Jesus in the second part of verse 57. Again, I read it. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. This is a a proverbial statement, like a proverb. It might seem like Jesus is just illustrating the current situation with this proverbial colloquialism, but I don't believe Jesus wasted any words. I think he's making this proverbial statement very intentionally and using one that speaks of a prophet. Because what does a prophet do? Well, two things. The first is probably the one you think of first, just like me, which is tell the future, foretelling. But the second thing that a biblical prophet does is speak the message of God. Proclaim his word. So if telling the future is foretelling, then telling the message of God is forthtelling. Prophets were to say, thus says the Lord. 
And that is what Jesus identifies with here in his proverbial saying regarding what he was doing and their response to him. It's that prophetic aspect of Jesus' ministry that he connects to their rejection of him. His prophetic ministry, his telling forth the message of the gospel, his calling people to repent and believe and embrace God's rule through God's king in God's world. And so that's why I'm saying in my little outline number three here that it's the message of Jesus that is offensive. It's connected to their familiarity with him, to be sure. But I suspect that if he had shown up with a message that was warm and fuzzy and had no call to repentance, they would not have had a problem with him. And it's the same message today, rejected by so many, that was being rejected then by them. A message that calls for repentance and belief in the good news. A call to be willing to forsake even family and closest friends if necessary. To forsake vocation and possessions if necessary. To forsake earthly comforts and pleasures when necessary in order to get on board with the kingdom of God. To get on board with God's rule instead of our own rule in our lives. To give over the steering wheel, as it were. And to us, that kind of call can be quite offensive. What do you mean, kneel before the king? You're calling me to give allegiance to this son of a carpenter in an ancient backwater Middle Eastern town? You can't expect me to submit to the reign of God simply by faith? I don't understand everything this book is saying. Some of this stuff doesn't make any sense to me. Oh yes, my friend, kneeling in faith is exactly what he calls for. And isn't faith the very thing that turns out to be at the heart of their rejection? And that's our fourth reason. Their unbelief. That's what verse 58 says. He did not do many mighty works there, because of their unbelief. What a tragic thing Matthew writes here. That the town that Jesus grew up in, at least a whole lot of the people who lived there then, did not embrace him. Isn't this actually exactly what happened to Jesus in the Gadarene region on the other side of the sea where Jesus cast out demons. You remember this in chapter 8, at the end of chapter 8. We won't go back and look at all of that right now. You're certainly welcome to later. But Jesus comes to this Gentile town across the sea, heals this poor man possessed of demons, but the town wants Jesus gone because it affected their money. The people saw Jesus heal this man, but when it came down to it, they would have chosen for that man to remain demon-possessed instead of them losing any of their wealth or earthly stability. And they rejected him in that Gentile town. And now here Jesus is in a Jewish town. In fact, his very 
hometown. And they're basically doing the same thing. His authority and power was on display, but it wasn't good enough for them. The combination of their offense at the nature of his message because of their question, perhaps, of their familiarity with his background was just too much for their pride and self-righteousness. And so instead of being characterized as Jews who believed in their Messiah when he arrived, who had grown up in their town, instead, this little Jewish town became put in the exact same category as the Gentile town in the Gadarene region, who chose earthly, the earthly and the material over the spiritual and the eternal. Friends, faith or lack thereof, is absolutely central to where you stand with Jesus. And it's fitting that this matter of belief is here in our text on Reformation Sunday because the matter of faith was central to the Reformers. In the 1500s in particular, they were recovering the biblical truth that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ to the glory of God alone. Thank God for the Reformation. Faith had always been central before them. and It continues to be central to this day. Faith. Belief. Trust. Embracing Jesus as the King and Lord and Savior by faith. But these Nazarenes had unbelief. Their faith didn't go that far. What they had seen with their eyes, this man who was once a little boy skinning his knees and playing with his toys and building things alongside dad in the shop, or Abba as he would have called him, being the progenitor of a new covenant? Being the king of the kingdom of God? Being the Christ, the Messiah? Standing in their synagogue, preaching and teaching them? Saying things that were astonishing to them? Perhaps saying some of the very things that the Pharisees and scribes previously had begun to become so upset about? Nah. This is Jesus. This is our little buddy from years ago. Because you see... As the author of Hebrews describes it, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is being assured or sure of something that you can't see, that you can't fully understand or see physically with your eyes. And apparently what these Nazarenes had seen in Jesus' youth prevented their belief in what God was doing in Jesus. How tragic it is. A lack of belief, a lack of faith in Jesus Christ for many reasons, but not the least of which is the fact that it leads to what is said in verse 58 that He did not do many mighty works there. Mark's account that I said is nearly identical says something even more stark than that. I put it on the screen here for you. It says, He could not do 
mighty works there except for these few. And then he marveled because of their unbelief and went about other villages teaching. Of course, Jesus can do whatever he wants, so it's not as simple as him being limited by their unbelief. Oh, if only they trusted me more, my powers would work. No, but belief is a necessary condition, you can say, for the miraculous work of God to take place. In fact, many times in the Gospels, Jesus makes belief the issue when he's performing some kind of mighty work. Not all of them, but it's at the heart of his ministry. Do you believe? If God is going to work, if Jesus is going to do these mighty works, faith is necessary. But he did not, or as Mark put it, could not. I think for the same reason that he could not and did not turn the stones into bread in Matthew 4, 1-4 without going against the redemptive plan of his Father. In Matthew 4, Jesus is being tempted by the devil. The devil tells him to turn the stones into bread as a kind of a shortcut. And if Jesus had taken that shortcut in his temptation with the devil in the wilderness, it would not have been consistent with his father's plan to use the suffering and life and death and resurrection of Jesus to bring salvation to the world. And in a similar way, the redemptive plan of God includes and requires faith. Belief. Because if you think about it, without belief in what those miraculous and mighty works are for, in what they're pointing to, then it just evolves into a kind of magic show. So he doesn't do mighty works there because without their belief in him as the Messiah and as the king of the kingdom, those works would ultimately mean nothing to them. And isn't this exactly... What Jesus was talking about at the beginning of chapter 13, here we are concluding it, but at the beginning we get this parable of the sower where some seeds fall on healthy soil and embrace the seed and fruit is born, but some seeds fall on rocky ground or a hardened pathway or thorny ground and they do not receive the seed and they do not bear fruit turns out that tragically Jesus's hometown had some bad soil in it had some hardened ground reminds me of a time when I was a kid I believe a 12 or 13 year old participating in our church's distribution of some gospel literature at a local mall in northeastern Pennsylvania and I handed a lady the tract I was holding and she opened it up began to read its context contents and her face changed and she angrily stuck it back in my hand and said honey i'm not a sinner and walked away hardened ground so why reject jesus because of the astonishing nature of his teaching because of the offensive nature of his message because of the humility of his humanity and because of their own unbelief But King Jesus calls all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. And if you're here today and you have never truly become a follower of Jesus, have never placed your faith, your belief, your trust, your hope in him, I call on you today to do so, to embrace him and to receive the 
mighty work of his salvation of your soul. And if you are a follower of Jesus, remember, it's true that the gospel that we share, the king that we represent, is not always easy for others to receive. Belief is necessary. And so my friends, don't become discouraged when the seeds that you are trying to plant don't seem to be taking root. When the family members and friends that you are seeking to water, so to speak, from the seeds that you've already sowed are not blooming. Remember that part of what it means for us to represent Jesus is to face the same kind of opposition that He faced. His friends and family members did not receive Him. And as I've mentioned earlier in uh, a previous message where we talked about Jesus' family, many of them did in the end. Praise God for that. So remember that part of what it means is to identify with the same kind of opposition that Jesus faced. Remember that his family and friends struggled with him and his message too. And keep on sowing. Keep on watering. And remember that God has drawn you to himself by grace through faith in Christ alone. And praise him. Praise God as the one who has graciously saved you. And as we're going to sing in just a moment, he will keep us until we are safely home. Glory be to God alone. Let's pray. Oh, our Lord, we cannot fully imagine what it must have been like for you to be rejected by your hometown. We know what it's like, some of us at least, to be rejected by people that we love and people that ought to know us well. But we don't know what it's like to go through it as the Messiah. As one who had never done anything wrong. As one who didn't deserve any skepticism or slander or judgment of any kind. And so first of all, Jesus, we thank You for enduring that for us so that we who are Your children now might be Your children. We also ask for Your help as we, as a local church together and as individuals and families, seek to share Your message. It's going to be discouraging for us at times. It has been for many of us already at times and is perhaps even at this very moment a source of discouragement for some of us. Help us to remember that You are calling us to this task and that what we are facing is very much part of the process. But Lord, perhaps more than anything, particularly on this day, considering the church history moment in which these doctrines of grace were recovered and continue to be taught by churches like ours today. Help us to be thankful for the truth and for the, the grace that has been extended to us in this very Jesus, this Christ in our text today. The grace that has been extended to us where He came to live perfectly, to suffer rejection like this, to suffer death 
as our substitute and then to be raised for us. Thank you for the grace extended to us and even for the faith that you have given to us so that we might believe. Please use us in the advance of your kingdom here and abroad. And I pray in Jesus' name. Let's continue quietly in prayer for just a few moments.